listening to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the show for public relations professionals who are ready to see real change in the PR industry. We are your hosts, April White and Laura Schooler. Let's get ready to wind down. Okay, so welcome back. Let's get started with our first segment, which today is the horror story. Okay, let's do it. All right, here it is. Do not open until podcast. I once worked for a company where my boss was known to offer dot, 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 creative advice. I was 24 at the time this particular story took place and relatively new to the PR industry. Of course, every young professional can use some advice from time to time. That's how you learn. This particular boss, though, offered advice that was less than helpful and ultimately pretty inappropriate. This is the instance that stands out most in my memory. She told me that I needed to cut my hair and wear lipstick to all meetings. (laughs) I, I always took care to dress professionally at work, but she wanted me to look older. Apparently, a haircut and darker lipstick would do the trick. Despite the fact that the experience made me feel very self-conscious and less confident, I stayed at that company for several years before moving on. While I don't remember how I answered at the time, my question is this, what on earth do you do when you're just starting out and a boss gives you inappropriate <laughs> advice like this? <laughs> I'm flabbergasted. If this were a guy doing it to a girl would be sexual harassment right so why is it not sexual harassment if it's a woman doing it to another woman it seems to say it's highly inappropriate feels like an understatement cut your hair and wear lipstick i'm 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 like visualizing um the movie the devil wears prada right i'm like oh i don't have lipstick on dang but I don't need to look older. I need to look younger. Right. So it was, it was about making them look older. So the clients probably uh, took them more seriously or something. I mean, said, yeah. I mean, I don't really. So what do you do? The question is, what do you do if you're 24 years old and like you're new, you know, to the big corporate world and this is what your boss says to you? I mean, what I probably would have done is been like, uh, uh, okay. And then been like, bah, like on home and screamed. Right. But that's, not really handling it. If I guess, hopefully you have the wherewithal and the confidence to say, oh, I appreciate your advice, but I'm not much of a makeup wearer and I really like long hair. And then you walk out, right? Or just don't do it. I mean- Well, and don't do it, but what do you say when somebody says that to you? I mean, now, if somebody said it to me, I would say, are you out of your mind? (laughs) I'm trying to think of a professional. If you're not professionally dressed, we've talked about this before, dress codes have really, really gotten lax in a lot of places. But in companies like PwC and still highly professional, you know, jobs and professional services, et cetera, law, law, accounting, et cetera, there still are dress codes. And if you don't follow those dress codes, it's not really about if you don't follow the dress codes, it's more about if you do something that's clearly against the dress code. Mm -hmm. Like if you're wearing flip-flops at a very professional company in Midtown, Manhattan, like somebody's gonna call you out. 
and that's fine. You know the rules going in. It's not professional to wear flip-flops. I agree with that. But to really question what somebody's hairstyle and like makeup routine is, that's not, that doesn't fall into that category. No, I have a friend who works in the yachting industry. And if you work on a yacht as part of the staff, you cannot have long hair. So you have to have your short, you know, army style hair. It's just part of the, it's part of the look. It's part of the, the uniform, right? It's what's well, expected. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like you work for the Yankees, you're on the Yankees. You can't have facial hair or long hair. But to say like, you should have a different hairstyle or like wear more makeup is not, is weird. Like, right. So what if this woman works for, you know, whatever, uh, Mac makeup or something like that? I guess then you're expected to like wear the makeup and look a certain way. But that's, I don't think that's what this was about. No, that's fair. No, this was just to make this person look older because the agency owner probably was insecure about the position that she was putting right. young people in, which is the bigger issue, right? It's probably not, exactly. that's indicative of having not enough senior people running your accounts. Right, because A, you're not good at hiring, B, you're cheap, and so you're trying to save money by hiring a younger person who is less expensive. And C, I think the key word is what you said about being insecure. Yeah. I mean, I think if somebody said that, I can't even imagine working for somebody that did that and then staying there. But for me, that would just be like, I'm not doing, I probably wouldn't say anything. I would just not do anything. And then I would quit. <laughs> but I think what you should do is probably say, if you're not going to do it and you're not comfortable with it, or you could say, if you're comfortable with one or the, not the other, I'm happy to wear lipstick. I've never done it before. I don't think it looks good on me, but if, you know, oh, that's something. But you just that's, saying that makes it crazy that sounded crazy it did, right it you wouldn't say that you wouldn't say that you'd be like um what i don't wear lipstick <laughs> right i don't wear lipstick Full stop well so what did i say when we started i said if you have the wherewithal and hopefully you do and the confidence to say you know thank you for your advice but i'm not much of a makeup wearer and i like long hair and walk out yeah that's the best response you had it you had it early on and then i circled around the drain <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so here's a question for you now that we're both older and the man on the management side of things. Yeah. What do you do if you have an employee who you know based on a client's expectations of professionality and sort of a corporate vibe mm -hmm. isn't looking or dressing or acting the part on a client call? How would you because obviously now everything is virtual and nobody sees anybody in person. Right. If you had that, how would you professionally convey to him or her that what they need to look like on Zoom? Yeah, like you can't wear a stocking cap. You can't wear, right. you know, you can't stand up on a call. You can't walk around. Like, how do you communicate things like that without I being offensive? I think that offensive? that's much easier to do if you're an agency person with a particular client who is more strict or, you know, conservative. Mm -hmm. All you say to your worker is like, look, every time we talk to company ABC, you got to sit down, you have to wear a collared shirt and you can't do this or, you know, and it's just for this client and it's because they're conservative and they're from a conservative place or a conservative industry, whatever. So we, we all need to be a little bit more stuffy than we normally would be. Yep. That's a nice way of handling it. It's everybody. And it's the truth, right? Yeah. And then it's not calling out any person or their fashion no, choices. No, because we all have to do it. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I like that. 
I'm on a roll today, huh? You are okay. on fire. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Laura, I think I see our guest joining. All right. Well, I will do the honors of introducing her if you awesome. don't mind. Please. So today on the PR Wind Down, we have Lynn Power, the co-founder and CEO at Masami. Lynn is a successful entrepreneur who has founded multiple companies in the lifestyle and communication spaces and has extensive experience as a senior PR strategist, having served as the last CEO of J. Walter Thompson in New York. Impressive. Mm-hmm. Wait a sec. How did we, how do we get somebody with that title on this show? <laughs> I don't even know how I got that title. Okay. And I was clearly the last one, but it wasn't that important. <laughs> so wait, I beg to differ. My, there's a, I've got like all these family connections to J. Walter Thompson. That's really pretty funny. It's one of those agencies that like everyone has worked at. If you've worked in the communications business, like so funny enough, my husband is also in the business and he worked there about 15 years before me, maybe not that long, maybe more like 12 years, but it's like, you, you just kind of have to do your stint, I suppose. Everyone's got like, uh, what do they say? Two steps, degrees. two degrees of separation from Jay Walter Thompson. It's like one degree. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, the reason I'm the last CEO is because it no longer exists. So Jay Walter Thompson was the oldest advertising agency in the world. Right. So when I was there, we had celebrated a hundred, it was like 153 years. So crazy, right? Think about yeah. advertising was like back then too, yeah. just, and yeah, then- Where, where were they, I guess in the newspaper or something, right? They weren't right? putting it on TV. Yeah. Right. And then they merged with Wonderman and it became Wonderman Thompson. Oh, so the Wonder name J. Walter Thompson is gone, erased, just like that. Um, so that's, that's what sad. happened now? It's such an institution. I know, but that's the problem with a lot of these legacy companies yep. is that they're bloated and out of touch and they're going to sort of one by one, we're already starting to see it happen, right? There's going to be these mergers and they're just going to be wiped out. So anyway, so that's why I was the last one. But after that, I was like, I, I, I wasn't there during that acquisition. I left before that but I'm glad I did because it was good timing on my part, but I just don't think I could go back into the advertising world now because now I've been an entrepreneur for almost three years and it's so much more fun. What do you guys do? So Masami is clean premium hair care with a Japanese ocean botanical. So it's all about hydration. I've always had really bad hair. So and my, and my partner, my business partner is bald. So all dude, and I've got really thin highlighted hair that's gotten thinner as I've gotten older. Yeah. It's just bad. And we launched a hair care brand. So go figure. <laughs> that should be inspiration for anyone, right? I think also COVID has done that to people. Mm -hmm. No, my hair, well, maybe it's true. I feel like I have, you know, like tumbleweeds that you see like in a cartoon. There's like, I find like tumbleweeds of hair, like in my bathroom, like. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta tell you, I was like that too. And I was starting to freak out a little because, you know, there's only so much, right? And I'm right. But I do think our products, even though I can't claim this because we don't have, you know, we didn't do all the testing on it. I've had a lot of people tell me when they use our products, they have less hair fallout. And I've noticed it too. Now I'll have like three hairs in the drain instead of like a whole clump. I'm writing it down because I'm going to check it out. <laughs> okay, good. I was gonna say we have very loyal customers, so I hope you love it. We have about 25% repeat purchasers, which is high for our category. So 25%, yeah. 
So yeah, how did you end up in... to check it out? Yeah, how do you go yeah. from being the CEO of J. Walter Thompson to starting a, know, clean, right? a clean uh, hair brand? Well, when I was in advertising, I worked at a lot of different agencies and a lot of brands. And that's the benefit, as you guys know, of working in that side of the business is you get to touch a lot of different businesses. Mm -hmm. And I realized later in life that I am totally ADD in, the, in that sense, that I actually don't like doing the same thing too long, that I actually enjoy like jumping around and learning different businesses. So I was fortunate enough to work on some really great brands over my career, like L'Oreal and Clinique and Nexus and Vichy, like beauty brands. And I always loved, I would go back and kind of gravitate to that. And when I left JWT, I had just gotten to a point where I just didn't feel like I could do any more in advertising. I kind of done what I thought I could do in terms of, you know, gotten to where I thought I could go. And I just wasn't enjoying it because I was dealing with a lot of HR, legal, because we had a big public lawsuit, finance, just, just the stuff, the nitty gritty stuff that was just the like putting out fire stuff of the job. And I wasn't doing what I loved, which was building brands, you know, and using creativity as a business tool. So it just ended up being serendipity that I met my business partner and he'd been working on these formulations for 10 years, which is a really freaking long time to do. That anything. is a long time. Especially when you think about it, like he was doing it with his own money as like his passion project on the side. And I would think after a couple of years, I would have been like, get, you know, like enough already. And his husband, God bless him, when I met the two of them for the first time, Masa, who's Japanese and is just a very Zen human and a lovely, lovely man. He basically said, James, you need to shit or get off the pot. Enough already. <laughs> like, this is it. Figure this thing out. And so James kind of took me through the whole background and the story and, and he'd gotten the formulations to a point where they were pretty darn good, but really didn't know where to take them. So I ended up deciding to join forces with him and we went into business together and we did, you know, we had to do everything, right? The branding, the packaging. And it's been really great because I also feel like I've been doing it for other people for so long that it's been really nice to do it for myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how you care so much more about your own company than anybody else's. Sort of like babysitting versus having your own children, I guess, right? Like, why is yeah. that surprising? But also, it's in a way, it's like all that advice that I've given my clients over the years, now yeah. it's like I have to take my own advice, right? Yeah. You have to go so, put an action, do it yourself. Yeah, so yeah. it's like it better work, right? Otherwise, yeah, that would be a problem. Yeah, you only have yourself to blame. Exactly. I'd be my, <laughs> my own worst client. Yeah. So are you a direct-to-consumer or do you have wholesale or what's your... So the beauty of launching a business these days is it's yes, to, yes, yes, yes. You can do all of it. Because it used to be when I worked on L'Oreal and some of those brands, you had to pick a lane. You either could be a salon brand and then you were not sold in the grocery stores, God forbid, or you were, you know, a DTC brand and you weren't sold in salons, but now we're actually both. We're DTC, so you can buy on our website. We're on Amazon as well, but we're also in a number of great salons, which to me is really important because I think consumers, like you almost, I think brands just have to be where consumers are, right? Like consumers don't want to change their behavior 
to do what the brand wants. They just want to live their lives and you have to meet them where they are. So mm -hmm. I think that's the reality. And people want to also touch, see, smell, try the product, experience the product. And, you know, the salon is obviously the ideal place to do that. So that's an important channel for us. And we're in all spoken wheel salons in the US, which is amazing. And then we also have a partnership with Dream Dry where we actually created co-branded products with them. So that's been great. And then, you know, it would be easy to hate Amazon because it just is. I actually hate Alibaba. That's a whole, we could do a whole podcast on how much I hate Alibaba. But <laughs> Amazon, I can't hate because I get sales every day. Wow. Like you, and again, it's where the consumers are. So like, and I'm like my own, again, if I'm my own barometer, it's just easier if I'm on Amazon buying other shit anyway, mm -hmm. add it to the cart. And it's also expensive. People don't realize when you create formulations that are totally natural and like our, our seaweed comes right from Japan from a family owned company that we buy it from. And that's so cool. That's a great story. That uh, whenever you're ready for PR, I want to tell that one. Oh my God. It's it, it, it. The best part is we actually went and visited them. What? I have to tell you, if you've never been, you've got to, you've got to do it. I had the advantage of going with Masa James too, but yeah, Masa, yeah, yeah. Masa's the native speaker. He just took us to the greatest places. He actually took the bullet train up to Northeast Japan. He's from a little town called Atsuchi. So his family's still there. So we went up and spent time with his family and the seaweed manufacturer is about an hour from there. And we went and we visited and saw all their equipment and how they do it. And it was very, very cool. So how have you been using your, obviously you're, you know, you've got this incredible creative prowess. How are you using that in 2020, right after launching a brand during a pandemic to make it that you launch a brand in the middle of a pandemic? What did you do? You know, how did you creative problem solve your way out of that? Yeah, I mean, I think like you weird. would do or anyone would do, you kind of just go, okay, well, we're not going to focus on salons. What can we focus on? And my whole thing is like, the world is so crazy right now. You've got to just control what you can. Like there's stuff you can't control and you just don't even bother because it'll just mm -hmm. drive you crazy. So we just focused on our content, on building our audience, on our social channels, on stuff like that, like writing blog posts, you know, and there were days when we get no sales and I'd be like, oh, but then I go, oh, but we did a blog post today. Like you'd at least feel you're doing something to move the business forward. And that's what you just have to focus on, like those types of things. And now we're really focused on growing our distribution because as things are starting to hopefully look more optimistic and we're hopefully getting to a place where the salons won't be as challenged and, and we can look at getting into some other retailers that that's our goal. Mm -hmm. this year. Very cool. I'm curious as somebody who's obviously got a lot of experience in advertising industry, I'm sure that you've interfaced a lot with PR. What, oh, do yeah. you, what do you see as the key value of PR that advertising can't deliver without its help? Credibility for sure. And awareness and just, it just helps because what I've learned, which I knew, but I've learned firsthand as my own business is that it actually takes somebody seven touch points before they'll buy our product. That's and, great. But Love it's that. also annoying because you think about it, it's shampoo. It's not that complicated. Why do you have to go to our site seven times or see it seven times or whatever? But that's the reality is that people like, mm -hmm. they might see an ad on Facebook and then they might see somebody that they know post about it and go, oh, I just heard about that brand, interesting. And then they'll park it in their brain. Then they might see it again on Instagram. 
April and I, and, and you know, some of the, the people who work for April, we've had this discussion many times with doing PR for consumer products. And some of our clients think like, if you get a story, like it should be like ka-ching, like one right. article means like 10,000 people should buy what, you know, their brand is the next day. So the fact that you said there's like, it takes seven touch points yeah. proves our case of what we always say to them, that that is not often the case. Right. Her PR so, function is a really good touch point. You know what I mean? It could be the thing that they initially pushes them over. Yeah, or yeah. the thing that pushes them over. Exactly. And that's, mm. I think that's super important as part of the, of the journey. I think so too. Yeah. And I, I think like listicles for consumer brands are amazing too, because then if people are going to do research for something, then they're going to find the article, even if it's two years later, yeah. And it's still going to feed into your sales, but you're going to have no idea that that's where it came from unless you're, you know, you have your Google Analytics game is at the top of its, which you're probably, actually yours is probably, your game is probably uh, pretty sharp. N not mine personally. <laughs> but my team, I will say. But your I team, yeah. And to your point, it's how marketing has changed these days. Like it's such mm -hmm. a numbers ROI driven exercise. Even with the Facebook ads, we're running 20 different versions and you, you know, testing different things. And it's, it's like, you just, that's just the way it is. I don't want to say it's not creative because of course there's still room for creative within that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely a lot more analytical than it is creative to me at least. Right. So I have two questions. One is, do you have like a big ad campaign or not? I wish, but we, we are self-funded, which means we have no money. So, so because of that, you know, we're, we're self-funded. Um, the good news about launching a business when you're old <laughs> is you don't need the cash as much. Hopefully you'll have squirreled a little bit away right. and you don't need the, you don't need the cash flow as desperately as you do when you're younger. So like, if you can't afford to just not make any money for two years or three years, it's tough. Yeah. Then you need to get the investment money. And right. You need then you need to, to go on Shark Tank. You need to go on Shark Tank. Exactly. <laughs> I bring up Shark Tank in every podcast, by the way. She does. She's obsessed. So I have someone on my team that actually did go on Shark Tank with Love Pop. Do you oh, wow. The pop-up greeting cards. <gasps> oh, my God. I love that. <laughs> Kevin, Mr. Wonderful invested in them, and they've like made a billion dollars. You should have her on because she's now my CEO of the candle company. Our oh, candle my God. Of course. I love that. She did Shark Tank with Love Pop, and it's like a blessing and a curse, right? Like, if you actually really need the money, I think it's not great because they squeeze you for the valuation and right. they don't, it's Take not, 40%. Just, but if you're just doing it for the pure PR, PR then, it's yeah. brilliant. then I think it's like, you just go on and, well, and, and the thing with them is they, they were, they were on Mr. Wonderful Games, the, the, the money. And then like a year later, they had a whole other segment about how fantastic they're doing, which I'm sure helped them, you know, for the second time. Oh yeah. Wow. So I think from that perspective, it's probably genius. Yeah. That's why I always bring it up because I think the PR is out of this world. Yeah. Have you ever thought That's about fair. having some sort of, you know, celebrity spokesperson or influencer spokesperson? You know, we have, well, we have a lot of micro influencers. We have a lot okay. of people actually reach out to us. So we've had, and we have some that are, I would consider C-listers, not A-listers, C-listers mm -hmm. maybe. But, you know, the problem is um, I actually had an agent because I worked with a fair amount of celebrities in the advertising world. I, I had an agent of one of them that I know personally 
call me and be like, oh, we should get so-and-so. Oh, it's so cheap. It's only a hundred grand. I'm like, right. just give Jennifer Anderson a hundred thousand dollars. And you're, I think we're not at the point yet where yeah. that makes sense. But to your point earlier, it's not like it converts into sales immediately. Yeah. Like what I've been trying to do is get them to sign up to an affiliate program so yeah. that it can, we can track it, but it's very difficult. And I mean, I had one influencer say to me, like with my followers, I did a poll. I have 70 people that want to try your products. I'm like, great. So I gave her a code. Do you know how many people bought? Two. Three. You're close. I learned that a long time ago. I'm not uh, super savvy with social media, especially now. I mean, you know, it changes every month. Like there's a yeah. whole new. So I'm talking a few years ago, but I helped um, a couple of companies and I was, I was creating like videos and it was great content. It was, you know, of, like amazing musicians and rock stars and stuff and, and posting this. And oh my this is what got, you know, a thousand likes and you're like, oh my God. And then you know how many tickets he sold? Two. Right. It's, really, it's really easy to go, oh, I like that. That doesn't mean you're giving a hundred dollars. So Lynn, we have a, a lifestyle client that has a consumer product and they, they just send their product for free, you know, to influencers. But what they do is that they say, okay, we really want these 10 as our dream influencers. Then they go and look and see what influencers those influencers are following and they'll send it to lower tier very low-hanging fruit influencers and they'll send it to maybe 10 of those and then after those people have all posted then they go after the one they actually want so they do a lot of gifting but they do yeah. like gifting so that that person when they see it, it's like oh i did maybe i already saw i guess this is a thing now and then by the time you go after the influencer you really want they already have the impression that it's out there it's worth a shot because they don't pay influencers anything. Yeah, we don't either. I mean, we... No, they just send them product. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. cool. Yeah, the, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about is how you at J. Walter Thompson as the CEO were in charge when the Me Too movement kicked off in the ad industry at J. Walter Thompson. It wasn't me. It was our... Global Chief Communications Officer, Aaron Johnson, who filed the lawsuit. Um, what? <laughs> I don't yeah, know about this. You can Google that thing and find out all sorts of stuff. Um, okay. Yeah, she sued my boss at the time, the global CEO of JWT, Gustavo Martinez. And I was actually in his office the morning we found out about it because it was we found out about it in the New York Post. We, we didn't, we didn't know. She didn't give anyone a heads up. It was just like, boom, boom mic drop. <laughs> so yeah, that was really interesting and difficult and everything you can imagine. He tried to hang on for a week to try to deal with it. And then it became clear the story was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Was she still working there? She was still working there. She stayed working there until the lawsuit was settled two years later. Holy cow, that must have been awkward. And then she was like, ka-ching, and like left. Or yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, he ended up basically having to resign after a week because in the past when those things had happened, and I've seen those happen in our industry before, it would be a day or two, and then it would sort of disappear. But she had put together this breathtaking comms plan. This was her business, right? <laughs> Don't mess with the PR people. Don't mess with the PR people. This is a good lesson for anyone out there. Don't mess with your PR person. And oh, man, she, true. 
it started in the New York Post, but then it was like the Wall Street Journal picked it up, the New York Times picked it up, all the ad trades picked it up, and it just snowballed. It just became a bigger and bigger and bigger thing. And then I was getting calls constantly every day, you know, from reporters, which I, I was not allowed to take. Mm -hmm. And so Gustavo ended up resigning because he had to. I mean, it, this, the story was just growing. It wasn't shrinking. And they put a new CEO in place who was a woman, who was a lovely woman. She's no longer there. And then basically I spent two years just dealing with the fallout of that, the implications of that, which I will tell you, I have so much respect now for crisis management and PR. Um, but it's just because these days I feel like whether it's COVID, like things out of your control, like we were talking about earlier, you know, Black Lives Matter, things happen. Mm -hmm. And you need to be, how's your brand going to respond, right? Like, how are you going to deal with this stuff? And it can be stuff that we think we have a handle on and have no idea it's coming. Did you have in-house PR people that you used or did you have? Yeah, in-house. So right. she was the head of the in-house team. And she stayed because, you know, I think that's what you're told to do when you do that kind of thing. You but can't. how did you deal with the PR for the company when the person who does the PR for the company is the one who... I know, right? <laughs> that it was incredibly difficult. So we basically had the person that was just the New York person, not the global person, took on a lot of that. And we couldn't really do PR. That was the reality. I mean, WPP, which was our holding company, basically shut us down. They would not let me even have a town hall to talk to the employees. Well, right, because they're publicly traded, so yeah. And it's just like, it's just one of those things where if I say something in front of a group of people that gets misinterpreted or somebody films, you know, it's like they were so nervous about anything yeah. happening that we, we just were not allowed. And then finally, after about a year, then I started doing some sort of lifestyle press like easier ways in and then and then i did a couple interviews and sort of eased my way back into like doing things that where i could kind of answer those questions but without answering the questions you know when somebody would ask me directly about the lawsuit because i wasn't allowed to talk about it when it was still going on and you um, guys obviously couldn't fire her because you can't. That's retaliation, right? So you can't. You can't. So fire she's her. there every day. I oh cannot imagine being that woman and going to work every day, having sued the global CEO. I know it was really hard for everyone else. It though. sounds terrible. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. But I think she knew what she was getting into. I think she was prepared for, for that. And so, as hard it was as it was for her, I think she had kind of known it was going to be like that, and she was okay with it. Like she just decided this is what she's going to do. She probably did know that the potential, and I mean, because you said she like had a whole plan. Like she did her own plan before she let it go. But um, I still say that w once the shrapnel comes flying, you never know how you're going to feel when it actually. Well, yeah, you know, comes I think down. you're. 100% right about that. I'm sure that it was a lot harder in reality than yeah. what it was when she was planning it in her head. I felt bad for her. I mean, coming in every day under those circumstances and, yeah. you know, and she, she really couldn't do her job to your point. So right. what was there to do? And you guys couldn't fire her. So mm -hmm. <laughs> everybody yeah. was, was handcuffed. Wow. Yeah, well, I'll have to find out more about it because I, I, I don't want to make you rehash it, but I have to find out like what was her, you know, um, 
Oh yeah, there was a lot of very weird and interesting things that were claimed and said, and some of them were proven and some of them weren't. And mm -hmm. you know, it was just a right. So we'll see. Well, I just I'll think any anyone who's involved on any side of that, it's hard. Yeah, especially when it, it, you know, you're just like, what? Like you see, you had no idea that it happened or that it was coming. Yeah, so for me personally, it was really hard because I was dealing with pissed off clients. Yeah. Who, because what happened? Yeah, you're I, like, please don't leave us, right? I mean. Well, yeah, and they just expected that they would get a heads up when there'd be something in the press. And I'm like, you don't understand. We don't have a heads up. Like, we're not controlling any of this. Just That's awful employees too yeah. people felt like torn um and conflicted and confused yeah and that was really hard um, right and then you're trying to hold on to your good employees who might be like i don't want to work here if this is going on you know like right that's a whole other level of now crisis. as painful as it was to your point your question in the earlier is about kicking off the me too movement i really do think it did in a lot of ways because right after that happened there were a bunch there were a whole bunch in advertising. There was that timeout advertising thing. There was like, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So wow. in a way it needed to happen because let's face it, the industry was and still is very testosterone heavy. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I have my own situations of things that have happened, situations that happened to me, you know, earlier in my career that today would be like, what? So I think it did finally course correct some of that and make it not okay for some of this stuff and and make the men much more aware of the idea of equality and diversity and balance because I've worked at agencies I mean I was at BBDO and they they were very much like what do you mean there are no women in senior positions like I would have these conversations with them and I think it did finally make it very clear that anything moving forward now like you can't just hire a white guy and think it's fine you have to at least interview a diverse pool of candidates yeah. people of color people from different backgrounds women etc and then you know hopefully find a more interesting candidate than just you know Bob, your friend tom your friend and john from yeah right that is well well no you know what they do any company hire a senior HR woman and a senior PR woman. They're like, there, look. Right. No, you're 100%. <laughs> that's right. And I think the problem is, like, if management doesn't empower those people to really have a say. Right. Then, and, and also, like, I would say the same thing about, like, hiring, like, a chief diversity officer. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, if they're not at the C-level table, then whatever. Yeah. Then they're just another junior exactly. employee. Exactly. Like, if they really don't have... A, a way to change the organization and they don't have the power to do it, then it's just like a token. Mm -hmm. For sure. April and I talk about this on a podcast a lot. I have never been like sexually harassed or, or, or but I've been treated like crap by bullies. Yeah. But that's not illegal. <laughs> so. It's not illegal, but it's also kind of not okay. Cause it's I've not had, okay, but you can't sue same, because the guy's right, a jerk, no. you know? It's like, the right. same amount. It's, the sa it's basically the same amount, not okay, but depending on how bad it is. Right. And we, so a April and I, and we get a lot of uh, anonymous letters. You know, we read an anonymous, like, horror story almost every week. And a lot of them are about this kind of crazy behavior of things that have happened at agencies or in-house. And it's like, wow. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. There's a lot of it. This is, I have a story of uh, not that long ago working at a company and 
walking in to discuss the release that we're doing that was very financially focused and went into a room and there was 10 or 12 people and 11 of them were men (laughs) and me because it was the like important financial stuff. And when I walked in, they were talking about baseball and I happened to know a lot about baseball. And as soon as I made a comment that was very specific and kind of inside baseball, baseball comment, they all, (laughs) they all went and they stopped talking and then they changed the subject. Oh my God. That's interesting. It's like, (laughs) Oh, she's, she's figured it out. Damn. We we don't know how to talk to a girl about baseball. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) So Lynn, when this, when this kicked Mm -hmm. off at J Walter Thompson, where were you, where was the world in terms of the life cycle of the Me Too movement? Had it just started? Had it been going for a while? It really had just started. I I will say I have a 17 year old daughter and they just don't like for her, it's just different. She just kind of assumes that she can do anything. Well, I also assumed that. And then I learned. And then you learned you couldn't. Yeah, the cold, harsh reality. And I think it was once I got into the working world. Like, I made it through, like, college and everything, like, just doing whatever. And then I got to the working world, and I was like, what's going on here? And I I don't think I ever really understood that that was partially what was going on. Yeah. I do think the younger generation doesn't have those quite those hang-ups though. So that's what I'm hoping. Or they're not running into it in the same not, yeah, uh, yeah, insidious yeah. kind of way, right? Right, exactly. Like I just, I just, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be easier for her. That's, mm-hmm. let's see. So crazy. Lynn, I know we've taken a lot of your time. Is there any questions you want to ask of us since we have been questioning you away? I would love to know what is your top PR hack for people like me who have no money? Top PR hack. That's a good question. People like you with no money, and I'm, and I, let's put that in the lifestyle category. One thing that I think a lot of people overlook, especially in the lifestyle side, because it tends to be a corporate or B2B tactic, is leveraging trends, research, and data. Ah. So if you're able to, I mean, this is a silly example, and maybe there's a better one if I were more ingrained in your brand, but if you, for example, found out that in the 60s, no one had seaweed-infused infl- hair products. And as of 2021, 90% of the new hair product brands coming out have seaweed. Or that's kind of a weird one. I'm just, this is, this is me, yeah, just yeah. Ma- you know, without knowing the details, just based on what you said. If you were able to say that and then come in and say, you know, here's an example of a new hair brand that's using seaweed because it's the new hottest popular ingredient and here's why something like that could be a pretty good hack because it gives the the trick with the lifestyle brands is that you're always kind of lacking on news pegs yeah so if you can find new ways through data or analysis of data or trends or something like that and pop in and say you know we're we're on trend and here's why that's a that's a pretty good hack what about like a total like old-fashioned crazy publicity stunt Ooh, i like that like what what kind of you know or something really funny so i don't know like you know i would get trump to use masami and see how his hair might actually look i'm gonna say give shampoo to like like a bunch of bald guys or something yeah Yeah. you know like something just totally contrary yeah right 
All right, that's interesting. That's a good one because there's I can get some creative juices going and see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, since you're a creative type, you could come up with campaigns where people are doing write-in campaigns about why they most need a hair makeover after the pandemic. Yeah. Ooh. Right. And then and award people like, okay, you need it. We're sending. We're yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and then, then you could tell them who about it. it. Yeah. That's a good idea. Then, I like you that. Can, and then you can pitch them for stories. So that's a good one. Or at least yeah. put it on your social media, right? Yeah. That's awesome. And then you could also pitch a story about, you know, tips for like keeping your hair looking good during the pandemic. Or like, yes. you know, the top 10 things you should do or top 10 things you could think about. Yes. I mean, it'd be kind of funny if you like put, you know, before and after, you know, and maybe yeah. you could even do like, you know, a dog or something like a sheep, you know, dog with long hair and like yeah, really yeah. messy and then like have their hair all like beautiful or whatever, you know, something cute. Okay. That's cool. All right. Nice. Good answers. Cool. Well, I'm glad that was helpful. Anything else you want to plug before we let you get off to your husband? I'm sure is waiting anxiously for you to rejoin him. him for dinner. <laughs> or fe feed him. Feed him. Yes. I would say I will just plug our website is lovemasami.com. L-O-V-E-M-A-S-A-M-I. Our social handles are Love Masami Hair everywhere. And I'm always open to feedback. So let me know what you think. Awesome. Cool. Well, well thanks. Th thanks so much fun. for your time, Lynn. It's been really fun. We'll yeah, stay in touch for sure. All right. Bye. Okay. Bye. Let's move on to the next thing. Okay. So this is an article from The Drum by Ian Burrell, How to Win at Virtual Conferences in 2021. So as a packed schedule of 2021 virtual conferences gets underway, Ian Burrell explores how the, media's, the media world's event organizers are attempting to replicate the togetherness of in-person gatherings for online delegates dispersed by COVID-19. So in its 54th year, the Trade Expo, once known as the Consumer Electronics Show, opens on Monday without the 180,000 delegates who might otherwise have swarmed Sin City. But the show goes on virtually. So Microsoft and Verizon will deliver keynotes while Audi and IBM will use the moment to launch new products, an essential part of the CES appeal. It goes on, talks about a lot of the other ones. So I think, I think the point here is that they're trying to carry on like all of these events are happening as they used to. I know myself, I have attended some conferences that were supposed to be, you know, two or three days and ended up having connectivity issues, try to log back in, it didn't work. And then I just went back to work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't imagine trying to keep the attention of people for, you know, nine At hours home. a day sitting on their computer, like in front of this. It's crazy. We did put on some pretty big events at PwC too. So they were usually a pain in the neck because I always was <sighs> dreading business travel. Mm-hmm. I was always exhausted. I never felt myself. You end up eating the crappiest stuff. You're kind of like running around like crazy. And then all of a sudden you're doing nothing, but there you are in the, in, you know, some corporate hotel, sometimes attached to the airport and, you know, some city that, you, and it's like, why are we doing this? So I am very appreciative to the virus for hopefully putting the permanent kibosh to that crap. <laughs> Usually those were like corporate meetings though, not like, you know, CES yeah. where I understand why everybody, but how much, I mean, I guess in some of these things, like, you know, real sales and real meetings get done. 
but there's no way that you could try to do the same length and the same robustness of a CES online. So I think what you have to do is really focus on like getting really interesting people and really interesting content and doing something really different, you know, et cetera. And I really, I guess I think it's about the people who you have like speaking on panels or whatever that will make people, unless there's some fantastic new networking software that I am not privy to, you're not gonna be able to really network with people that you don't know or don't know well virtually. And isn't that, I don't know, 80% of why people go to these things? Right, no, that I think that I think you've kind of nailed it. I mean, there are ways of networking virtually that work and Lunch Club is one of them, right? But Lunch Club. they try to do, or what I've seen done at these virtual events with multiple people, they have breakout rooms. Right. So it goes from being, we're all in Zoom with 400 people to now you're in a room with 14 people and talk amongst yourselves but it doesn't work like it does in person because there's usually you know there's two people that are trying to hold it together and there's you know five people that turn their cameras off because they don't want to do it yeah you have to have really <laughs> strong moderators in that case people to really get people engaged so right 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 you have to have somebody who's really like good at the life that. of the party right and then also like advancing business agenda mm-hmm Mm -hmm. Probably the, the moderators, they don't know everybody, or maybe they don't know anybody on these breakout rooms. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's a pretty tough one. And I'm sure in that regard, people who do that for a living or go to those things frequently are looking forward to them going back to in-person. Mm -hmm. But like I said, for me, most of the time, it was just hell. I would say I went to NAM, the music conference, and that yeah. was kind of great. NAM is awesome. Um, yeah. But they have all the new instruments and like yes. biggest problem on the PR side is that that's where you set up a lot of meetings with reporters mm -hmm. that are attending the conference. Yeah. Do they still want to set up meetings if they're not already there in person and like, all right, well, I might as well fill this 15 minute block. Right. You mean to do it virtually? Like, hey, Bob reporter, join us on the virtual, our virtual thing. And Bob's like, okay, and then he probably cancels. I don't know. I felt like at NAM, I, I, I did a lot of that trying to get reporters to come to the booth. Mm -hmm. And like half of them didn't show up in that regard either because they got caught up somewhere else or they were like oh, all they the way on the yeah. other side of the floor. So yeah, I don't know if that would be so different. It was like half yeah. of the ones you set up would actually show and the rest right. would, might be the same. I, yeah, it might be. I mean, seems... reporters still need to get stories. And if they're in person, they might be running into people by accident. If you're online, you're not accidentally running into somebody because you have to go purposefully to their mm -hmm. link. I'm thinking that the better solution is doing regular webinars rather than trying to do some huge event that's four days of people being stuck on, the, on a Zoom call, which sounds terrible. Is there anything else in this story? Huh. The potential of virtual events was shown in Tomorrowland's Around the World Festival in July, which attracted more than 1 million people to its two-day mix of electronic dance music, 3D design, cutting-edge video production, and special effects. It demonstrated that a pandemic-driven leap in digital capability allowed for the creation of experiences that would be impossible at scale and in real life. They're saying that now more people have the ability to go to it because it's virtual and they're not going to travel to Vegas or whatever. And they but, don't have to pay to fly to, yeah. Right. Or stay in a hotel. Or, or, 
you know, that was part of the thing when you like go to these big hotels, South by Southwest, all the hotel rooms were gone. In the case of the one that you just mentioned where he says they're here to stay, you said it was EDM and like a digital- 3D design and- Right, so it's visual. Special effects, yeah. Right, it's visual and it's audit auditory. That's a good point. That's so a good point. that makes sense. Right. That makes sense because you mm -hmm. actually there's not a physical thing that you need to touch. And it's probably amazing to see it on your big screen as opposed to right. trying to, like, get a seat in the auditorium where they're going to show it. And you're like in the last row. If you're actually got like a front row seat that's on your computer, maybe. So maybe the answer is that there's certain types of industries that are way better set up to do these sorts of events virtually, where there are others that will need to be in person, like. Right, if it's, you know, the accounting industry, like, how are you doing that online? I mean, uh, Snoresville, right? Because if you're there to go play golf and, you know, hobnob with people, you need to be in person. Right, so if they're boring in person, you really got to work at it virtually. Because everyone's always multitasking. And there's not this, like, oh, we all get to go, you know, drink a bunch of alcohol later. and See, but the thing with that is... There was very few times that I actually wanted to drink alcohol with any of the people that I was with. <laughs> I very much separated my work and personal life. Like That's funny. When I was younger. That's smart. It's really smart. It's, I didn't do that and I wish I had. So right. part of it is because I really did have a responsible role. And part of it is because, you know, I'm sort of a square. <laughs> All right. Well, that's as long as we're clear on that. <laughs> I should have been square, but I was not. You were a rhombus. I was a rhombus. That's right. You know what a rhombus is? I do. It's a, it's, a, it's a cattywampus square. Two sides are parallel and two sides are going to meet eventually, right? In the plane. <laughs> well, you, you really are a square. <laughs> <laughs> What a geometry nerd. I was. I love geometry. Oh my God. I hated it. That's so funny. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in for the PR Wind Down podcast. And we'd like to thank Lynn for joining us today. We had a great time. Super fun. Remember to submit your own agency stories and questions. And if you like what we're doing, please share our show with your friends and colleagues. If you subscribe and leave us a rating, it will help us to reach more communicators like you. And if you have an anonymous PR horror story of your own, please send it our way at the contact email below the episode notes. We can't wait to wind down with you again next week.